to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. It's been difficult to follow the news and not feel overwhelmed. The Taliban militia in Afghanistan gained control of the country. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are desperate to escape. And here, fierce debates over the moral obligations of the United States to its allies and our immigrant and refugee policies for the most vulnerable. And swirling around all this suffering are renewed fears among interfaith leaders and advocates that we may see a new wave of anti-immigrant hate crimes. If this week's events remind us who the Taliban are, they also remind people like me what it was like 20 years ago when American troops first invaded Afghanistan and we began seeing its Taliban rulers on the news. As I watch otherworldly scenes over there, I realize that that other world can instantly make me an other in my own. It's striking that our public enemy, number one, again looks very much like me. A bearded, brown-skinned, turban-wearing, sick American. That's Simranjit Singh reading an excerpt from an editorial he wrote on August 18th for the Religion News Service. Born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, today, Jeet lives in New York City with his wife and two young daughters. He's a religion professor, a social justice activist, and an author on a mission to combat ignorance of the Sikh faith using stories to foster understanding. This fall, many elementary school students will find his first illustrated children's book, Fauja Singh Can Run, on the bookshelves. It was released in the summer of 2020 by Penguin Publishers. It's the first illustrated children's book by a major publisher that centers a sick character. And since its release, it's made multiple best book lists for young readers and is now in its fifth print run. It details the story of Fauja Singh, a turban-wearing elderly man who began running marathons in his 80s after immigrating to London. Today, he's 110. Some listeners may remember seeing him in commercials in an Adidas campaign from 2004, alongside Layla Ali, daughter of heavyweight champ Muhammad Ali, and soccer player David Beckham. It was under the slogan, Impossible is Nothing, celebrating the 100-year-old marathoner. But it told us little about Fauja Singh's life or struggles. Simranjit Singh set out to change that. This week... We talk to authors who are introducing kids today to stories of people underrepresented on bookshelves, stories that center faith, identity, and grapple in an age-appropriate way with adversity. We begin with my conversation from 2020 with Simranjit Singh. Introduce me to Foja Singh. Well, I mean, there's so many aspects of his story that are inspiring, but one of them is he started running in his 80s as a way to deal with some of the challenges that life had thrown at him. And and a big part of that was losing his life partner. His wife died, his son died, and he, at 81, moved from his village in Punjab to London to live with his kids. And so here's this man who's essentially lost everything 
and he's moving to this new place where he has no friends. He's lonely and sad and he has very little to do. And then he finds running and that's his escape. So in his 80s, he begins running. At 89, he finishes his first marathon and then he gets faster. And in his 90s, he shatters all the world records for 90 years old and up. Did he speak English? No, he doesn't speak English. He's never spoken English. He speaks Punjabi pretty much exclusively. And so that's part of the immigrant experience as well, right? And he he's so reliant on his family to get by. He's also illiterate. He is to this day. I, I had, and I still do, I'm sure, had this bias that literacy equals intelligence. And I'd never really spent time with someone who couldn't read or write until I started spending time with him. And of course he's in, like, he's brilliant. And he's so wise. And so it really helped me shatter my own internal bias around around literacy and what that means and to think about why he didn't have access. And that's because he was disabled as a child. And what was that disability? You don't name it specifically in the children's book? We don't know. And he doesn't know himself. So he was, I mean, he was the early 1900s in a village in Punjab. So it's not just that they didn't have the language that we do around disability today. It's also that they didn't have access to medicine. Mm. His particular disability was one that he was able to overcome over time. Part of the challenge of writing the book was it's so easy to fall into tropes around disability. And so we ended up actually bringing in disability consultants. Part of the challenge is, and I think about this a lot with my own kids and, and, and how I teach in the classroom, you want to introduce your kids. And I want to introduce my kids to these these realities in the world that they'll encounter, including, you know, difficult emotions, challenging emotions, different forms of oppression, like racism. We, we mentioned racism in the book, but you want to do it in a way that that's age appropriate. And so we were incredibly thoughtful around these ideas of how we talk about disability. And in Foja's case, we ended up very much based on the advice of disability consultants, focusing very much on his particular experience with disability so that we didn't imply in any way that all disabilities could be overcome with hard work, which is the common trope around disability and, and incredibly damaging, right? Because the implication then becomes if if you're not able to get over your disability, then you're just lazy. You're not trying hard enough. And that's not fair and it's not right. And so it was it was this really interesting experience for me figuring out how to present these really complicated ideas for elementary school students, like for my own daughter who's four. There was this one moment when I read the book to my daughter for the first time. There's this image of Foja in middle age combing his daughter's hair. And my daughter when we got to that page, it was the first time we we're looking through the book and she points at it and she squeals like she's so excited. And she says, that's that's you and me every morning. And Aww. yeah, it's like totally cliche of like <laughs> heart melting daddy daughter moment there. Exactly. And it's like it was the dream from when I first started thinking about writing a children's book for my kids to see themselves represented and to see me as someone besides, you know, all the stereotype, negative stereotypes that they get otherwise, like for, for them to see positive representations of our family uh, was like the dream. And so that moment just like totally, you're right. Yeah, it just melted my heart. You know, growing up, I felt so 
isolated as, you know, a sick growing up in Texas with a turban and a beard. It's not just that I didn't have friends in the entire region who looked like me. It's also that there was no representation in media spaces. So it was just so isolating. And so when my kids were born, I reaffirmed my commitment to make sure that they never felt that way. I always want them to feel like their stories matter and that there's nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to their identity or their heritage or anything like that. What seeded that desire and conviction as you describe it? I think it would go back to my parents. Uh, first and foremost, I think, you know, for them, it was very much an ethical practice that, you know, we are, we are graced with all sorts of blessings and privileges, things that we don't necessarily deserve, but we've received for whatever reason. And it doesn't belong to us. It's, it's not something we take with us when we die. And so what do we do with it? Do we, do we sit around and just enjoy it? Or do we enjoy it and also try to do what we can to ensure other people have access to those, those same joys and privileges? And so, you know, on the one hand, growing up, my parents could have very easily focused on the racism we experienced. And really, it's so easy to fall into a victimization mindset. And to say life life is hard for us, life sucks. You know, we have to we have to fight for our survival, which we did, and we still do. But they actually really focused on what are the silver linings, what are the blessings, what are the gifts, and then what do you do about that? And so I think that's become so ingrained within me that it's hard for me to even imagine what a life would look like for me if everything wasn't always a pivot towards how do I make life better for other folks. That's just a part of the politics that I've learned to embody. And it's, you know, it's not inherent. It's it's definitely something that's been taught to me. And, and that really comes from watching my parents do that in their own lives. And the conversations that I had with them about what it means to be a good person in this world, and also what it means to find joy in this world. And my parents always used to remind us better to give than receive. That was a mantra in our house and, and something that we really took to heart. Was there ever a point for you when you encountered a level of racism or xenophobia targeted at you because of your appearance or because of your faith that shook you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's a harder thing for me to talk about or even think about because those moments are so painful that while, while they stay in your heart and in your soul, you also psychologically just don't want to think about them. And, and so you put them aside and, and you try and lock them up so you, you don't have to deal with them anymore. When I really felt shook was when I first moved up north. I went up for graduate school in Boston. You know, it was the first time I was away from my family. and But I was excited to be in a place where I expected to be to be accepted for who I was and to be around more people who shared my culture and background. And it really shook my worldview to enter into such a place that, you know, around the country we consider to be a liberal bastion, a center for multicultural and multi-ethnic and multi-religious and all these, all these different things. And I get there and I'm getting the same stuff I got in Texas. And then I moved to New York and then I have the same false expectation and, and I get the same stuff. And those those things are important because they help ground us in reality and, and deal with and confront the ugly truths that we try and avoid. 
but because I had built up this false expectation, perhaps out of a, a desire for security and a desire for believing that racism wasn't a problem everywhere, those were really painful moments where I had to deal with the ugliness on the outside, but also internally some of the some of the challenges around how we think about ourselves. Someone will say to me, oh, you grew up in Texas looking like that. What was it like? And in my head, it's so difficult to describe something different because to me, it's all I knew. So it's normal. It's normalized, right? We've normalized it. There's no place where I am perceived to belong truly. And, and whether or not I feel like I belong isn't always relevant to how people perceive me. And I, I think that's part of how racism and xenophobia works, right? So I could feel perfectly at home uh, and I did growing up in, in San Antonio or where I live now in New York. And I could feel totally comfortable in my skin and walking around and uh, feeling like I'm part of the community and the neighborhood and all that stuff. But there will still be people on the street who say, go back to where you came from, like implying that I don't belong. That happens to me in the States. That happens to me when I'm traveling in other countries. That even happens to me in my family's homeland of Punjab and across India, where I stick out like a sore thumb. And so it's this really interesting experience of knowing in my bones that no matter where I go, I don't fully belong. And people know that, right? Like I stick out. And so there's this really strange interplay constantly within me of, I feel like I belong, but I know that people around me don't feel like I belong. When I show up in a place, I'm very conscious of the fact that people see me as an outsider. I'm not overly concerned with making them feel safe, but I, I am conscious of the fact that I should ensure my own safety because I don't know how other people are reading me and what they might do. Mm. I remember the first time I met him and I, I remember this thought that I had of how refreshing and reassuring it was to meet someone who lived up to your expectations, right? Like it's so common for us to put people on a pedestal and, and to want to believe these things about these people. And then when we finally meet them, we're like, oh, you're not who you said you were. You're not who I thought you were. And Fuja Singh's not like that. You know, I met him when he was 104 for the first time, I believe. And he was so energetic and so funny and so loving and so kind. It just really spoke to me. You know, what I really took away from Fuja Singh's story is this, is this internal drive. Let me say it this way. A part of what happens when you're racialized and, and you're trying to reconcile the tension between how other people perceive you and how you perceive yourself to end up in a healthy place, one has to at some point let go of, you know, people are just going to see me this way and there's only so much I can do about it. I, I even remember the first time we dealt with like pretty serious racism in Texas. I remember my parents sitting us down and saying, you can't control how everyone treats you, but you can always control how you respond. And that, that to me is the core of resilience. Um, you take what life gives you and, and you figure out how to run with it. And that's what Floyd Jessing did so beautifully, whether it was around disability or whether it was around illiteracy or whether it was around uh, death that led to depression. Those experiences would really inform what his character is as a human being. And so that to me is just like the gold standard. Mm. It's a cool story about running and I love running. It's a cool story about a sick man. And, you know, I care about representation and really want to do that. But at the end of the day, 
these are the values that I want to pass on to my kids around resilience and believing in yourself and, and just persisting no matter no matter the situation. We continue my conversation with activist, writer, and religion professor Simranjit Singh after this short break. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. the frustration that I'm feeling now with children's books is, you know, you go into a bookstore and you finally have books with different storylines, the diverse representation, and, and you walk into a bookstore and there everything is sort of sidelined as the diversity book, right? Or books for Black readers. Mm. And so for me, this book and these books, like, yes, I want them for my kids and I want them for other Desi kids and that matters. But also I want my daughter's classmates to read these stories and, and recognize that they're part of mainstream society, right? Like it's not it's not like we're on the margins and we have our own stories and you have your sort of mainstream or normative stories that, that are different from ours. Like I, I want that connection to happen. Like that to me is part of what anti-racism work does. That's part of what intersectional uh, justice is about. And I think we have to start a lot younger than we do. And so, yes, this, this book is the first children's book from a major publisher to feature a sick character and yes i'm excited that that sick families and sick kids are excited and and i'm excited for my own kids but I'm, i'm also thinking about what a book like this can do for people of all backgrounds my thesis is that if we can teach our kids to see the humanity and the people who look and seem most different from them then we can teach them to see the humanity in everyone 
That's Simranjit Singh. I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Singh is a religion professor, a writer, and an activist. He's on a mission to educate the public about what it means to be a Sikh, and he likes to use stories. In 2020, he published his first children's book, Fauja Singh Can Run. It introduces young readers to the life story of the world's oldest marathon runner, Fauja Singh, who, like Simranjit Singh, is a practicing Sikh and a long-distance runner. The book transports readers to a village in Punjab where we meet Fauja Singh as a young child and the various events, including adversities, that bring him to London. And that's where he begins running. Earlier, Jeet shared his experiences growing up post-9-11 in Texas as an observant Sikh and the influence of his faith and family. Let's get back to our conversation, which took place in the summer of 2020. Do you see a need for more books that talk about that challenge through a faith lens? Absolutely. Part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to provide different nodes of connection for people, right? Like there's something really simple about telling someone's story and for kids to just latch onto them and say, oh, I have those same kinds of experience. I have those same kinds of emotions. I like running too. And that in and of itself does some work. But then what does it do when you take an intersectional lens and a social justice lens and you say, this person is someone who dealt with disability. This is someone who is older. This is someone who, who dealt with xenophobia and racism. Like all of a sudden, you're providing multiple points of connection that help us go beyond these sort of siloed understandings of oppression and see the bigger picture. I think you're right to point out that faith is another one of those aspects of identity that more often than others actually get sidelined as, as something that we don't know how to talk about and something we don't know how to deal with. And, and I think as I've been trying to have those conversations with my daughter about what it looks like to live with conviction as a sick, but also to live with the open-mindedness of someone who embraces pluralism, we want to firmly root ourselves in our traditions. But the only logic we typically give ourselves is one of supremacy. You're either in or you're out. I subscribe to my faith because it's better than the others. And we end up creating a very similar sort of a religious hierarchy as we do with race. That is incredibly damaging. And whether we want to admit it or not, there's no possibility of pluralism when we're operating out of constructs of supremacist thinking, right? Like my faith is better than yours, that's supremacist thinking. And so I think what we need is a new way of thinking about what it looks like to be living with uh, pluralistic ideals while also remaining committed to our own particular faith practices or traditions. You are well aware that in some religious traditions, supremacy and claiming supremacy is a fundamental tenet. And it's a tenet that people hold on to as a way of not simply defining themselves, but of claiming their right to exert influence over things that are within their control, whether it be their families, whether it be the community norms, whether it be the laws. How do we start having that conversation? How do we start having those conversations? I'm not sure. But what I do know is that we have, as a collective, 
normalized discussions around white supremacy in a way that I couldn't have predicted 10 years ago. We as a society have come to agree for the most part, right? Like not, not clearly not everyone, but we've come to recognize it as something that's unacceptable and inappropriate given our values. I'm hoping to see something similar around conversations about religious supremacy. It's easy for me to see what religious privilege and religious supremacy looks like because I've been on the receiving end of it. Just like it's a lot easier for people of color and black folks in particular to see what white supremacy and white privilege looks like because they've been on the wrong side of the equation. Part of what needs to happen is that as we begin unearthing what religious privilege and religious supremacy means, we need to be able to open up these conversations to those on both sides of the equation, those who enjoy religious privilege and perpetrate religious supremacy and those who are on the receiving end of it. I think right now it just feels like we're too early to engage in that because the logic of religion so often relies on people buying into these ideas of superiority and inferiority of, of sacred and profane. It's so hard to unpack that without people feeling like we're challenging their very faith existence. The most helpful trait that one can cultivate is humility. The humility to know that your way of experiencing the world is not the only way the humility to accept that you might have internalized some ideas that are problematic and that you want to do better, the stakes are extremely high. And we've been socialized and conditioned to understand that to admit any missteps or mistakes when it comes to issues of race and justice is inexcusable in any way. And I think what we really need to do is, is shift that thinking and to, and to recognize that we all are guilty. And the real problem is that when we recognize it, if we don't do anything about it, then we're doing something wrong. That was Simranjit Singh, a religion professor, activist, and the author of children's book, Foja Singh Keeps Going, which made the NPR's best books of 2020. Illustrator is Beljinder Kaur. Coming up, how the absence of representation in children's books inspired a collaboration between two moms and authors, one Jewish and one Muslim. Together, they wrote a young adult story that explores the complicated and universal themes of coming of age, living in a bicultural home, and what it means to be an American. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Green Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Young adult books popular among the middle school crowd have lots of familiar themes. Vampires, aliens, kidnappings, climate apocalypse, and often at the center is an orphan child left to save the world. I know this because I have a middle schooler in my house. Few and far between are storylines that touch on faith or religious practice. And that may be why a place at the table grabbed my attention and pulled me in as I met the characters, two middle school girls, Sarah and Elizabeth. 
One is Muslim and the other Jewish. The story, they meet in cooking class and quickly find themselves paired up reluctantly to join forces in a cooking contest. It's one that challenges them in ways they never expected. The story unfolds in a medium-sized Midwestern town, and it captures the struggles of being in middle school, along with the nuances of growing up in bicultural homes. Unlike children's books that tend to avoid complicated themes, this young adult novel offers a glimpse into the lives of two young women trying to find out who they are, the meaning of friendship, and it includes their parents and their struggles. It's a story the co-authors would have wanted for themselves. There was just an urge from me to want to write the book that I would have wanted to read as a kid with a modern day, a contemporary kid who's um, in an interfaith family from a bicultural experience and, um, and explore that. But at the same time, part of me realized maybe that's not a story that I can tell by myself. Maybe this is a story for two people to tell, to give a broader view of what that experience is like. Laura Siobhan did just that. Two years ago, she met Sadia Faruqi, a Pakistani-American interfaith activist and children's writer from Texas. The two had entered a writing contest, and although Sadia didn't win, she did get to meet Laura. Laura was one of the mentors that year, and she agreed to kind of unofficially help me improve my manuscript at that time. And that's how I got to know her, just her generosity and willingness to help somebody who was just starting out. The collaboration turned into a friendship and a book, A Place at the Table. In this story, Elizabeth, a first-generation Jewish-American, and Sara, a first-generation Pakistani-American, meet in an after-school cooking class and become unlikely friends. They don't hit it off at first, but then they discover both their mothers are applying for U.S. citizenship, and the two form a shaky alliance and even make plans to win a spot on a local food show. And it's here in trying to concoct the most amazing cross-cultural dish, they test their skills and their friendship. This story weaves so many themes, food, family, and the lived experience of being a person of faith. For both women, this project was personal. I'm an immigrant to the U.S., and it was a long time ago, but it's been a long road to feeling as part of the country, obviously, as every immigrant does. And so I really identify more with Mrs. Hamid, Sara's mother. But then my my kids are first-generation Americans. They're born here. They're growing up here. So everything that Sara feels in the book is things that I have seen both my kids, my daughter, and my son go through. I had always wanted to write a story very loosely based on my own life growing up. My mother is an immigrant from England. She moved here in, I think, 1967. That's right. And married my father, who was a New Yorker from the Bronx and Jewish, and she converted when she moved here. And we lived in a very multicultural family, but it was a struggle in many ways. I felt growing up very connected to my British culture because we traveled quite often to see my grandparents. And yet when we were in England, my brothers and I were kind of an oddity for having brown eyes and we were called Yanks. 
So we felt very connected to that, but also very much other than that. And yet in America, we also, you know, being so connected to our mom's culture, that was a struggle. You know, Hebrew school was an odd place for us <laughs> um, because we were being raised mainly by a parent who is a convert and who wasn't as connected with Jewish culture as, you know, someone who was born into it. Are you concerned that this may not appeal to kids who are not first-generation immigrants? I feel like part of it is the universal story of starting middle school and having this bigger pool of kids and having to sort of renegotiate the friendships. You know, are my friendships from elementary school going to continue in the same way when I get to sixth grade? Well, no, they're not. <laughs> but am I going to retain them, I guess, is the question. And then for Sarah's character, there's the additional level of being at a large public middle school for the first time. That shift from elementary to middle school is a time when kids are stepping outside of that kind of close-knit elementary school experience. And for many kids, it's a time when they're starting to see and establish who they are beyond their family, beyond their close-knit circle. Why is food so central and important in this book? Oh my gosh, so much about human nature. And one of the key things that I've learned in the last 20 years is that food really brings people together from very different perspectives or life experiences or religions. It's something that you can bond over. It's something that you can learn from. We have little kind of, you know, bits in the book throughout where Sarah's mom in the cooking club is cooking, say, a samosa. And Elizabeth says, oh, this is like something uh, we cook in the Jewish culture as well. So there's so much that can bring us together over food, over a table of food. You know, things that I've seen a lot of times my kids shy away from because it makes them feel different from their classmates or their friends. There's there's so much that a lot of first generation kids kind of feel that they need to hide because it makes them feel different or look different. Um, and this is our way of saying it's really not it's something that can bring you closer together. It was Sadia's idea to bring in the food element. And it was really interesting to me because I learned from Sadia that a lot of women in particular who are immigrants have to bring and rely on their soft skills when they come to this country because their degrees or their certifications, their professional background might not transfer over. So that was one reason. But as we developed the characters for me, for Elizabeth, uh, the food is very symbolic. She is missing that. Um, that sense of nurturing from her mother who's going through this depression, from her father who travels quite a bit for work. And for her, being in the kitchen is symbolic of that family togetherness that she's missing so much. So she sort of gloms on to the Hamid family because for her, they represent that closeness that comes when we're cooking together in the kitchen. Mm. And it's interesting because for Sarah, is the complete opposite. The story actually starts out, the first line is, cooking is painful. For her, she's sick and tired of this cooking and this food because she wants something more American and she sees her own food as something that makes her stand out even more. She's trying not to stand out. She's trying to be American, but her family and especially her mom just insist on being very outspoken in their jobs. Her mom's a caterer. And now is teaching a cooking class in her school. How embarrassing is that about this other kind of food? 
And so she wants to do everything to get away from it. You know, things that I've seen a lot of times my kids shy away from because it makes them feel different from their classmates or their friends. There's so much that a lot of first generation kids kind of feel that they need to hide because it makes them feel different or look different. Um, And this is our way of saying it's really not something that can bring you closer together. There are scenes that don't shy away from bias and prejudice. Did either of you have any concerns or encounter any pushback as you were writing this? Sadia and I have been talking about this lately. An issue was raised about the scene where somebody calls Elizabeth's mother a shiksa, which is, I guess you could say it's a derogatory. It's not a nice thing to say. It's a term for a woman who's not Jewish, which, by the way, she is. And I think it's really interesting that there was a little bit of pushback on that, you know, from a perspective of somebody Jewish saying, do we really want to share that? And I had to say, and, you know, Sadia and our editor backed me up, that kids hear these things. They hear adults using these terms. That's how kids learn them. And I think it's important to have them in books because then kids have seen, what do I do when that happens? Another thing that we really wanted to bring to the story was how to be an ally, how to be a real friend, which means not just be a friend in terms of, you know, hanging out together, going to the mall together, or talking about stuff that you have in common, but really standing up to other people who might say something negative or feel not in the best way towards your friend. So we actually have scenes in the book where Sarah has to sit with Elizabeth and explain hey, this happened and you just stood there. You were quiet. I need something else from you. I need you to stand up for me. Being a friend means standing up for someone. So really modeling, not just for our kid readers, but also our adult readers, what an ally is, how to be an ally, which means not just stand there when you see a microaggression or a full-blown incident, but really um, be able to stand up for that person, whether it's your friend or a stranger, and say, this is this is not okay. Can you give me an example from the book? It's just such a simple thing. It's just a saying that Elizabeth says, sugar and spice. And I'm sugar because I like to bake. And your spice because she doesn't say it, but because in her mind, Sarah cooks, her family cooks with a lot of spices. And, you know, she's 11. She's a young girl. And nobody's ever had her stop and think through how that might be um, perceived as offensive by somebody else. I'm curious, Sadia, do you feel like if someone said, um, I'm sugar, you're the spice, would would that feel like a microaggression to you? So definitely depends on, you know, who you are and whether you've had experiences. So much about microaggressions, I believe, is what your own life experience has been like. There are so many other instances in the book that are like that. Uh, for example, Maddie, who's Elizabeth's friend, keeps saying PLU, people like us. Um, it's It's just... You know, why would you say that? I think the word normal really takes on a different meaning in this book. I think um, Elizabeth starts to realize that her friend Maddie is using the word normal to communicate dominant culture. And Elizabeth is just starting to realize, oh, that's what's going on. That's what she means when she says normal. And I'm not okay with that because, you know, she's she's. She's saying that I'm okay, even though I'm Jewish. Wait a second. 
that's not that's not how a friend should behave. In each chapter, Sarah and Elizabeth work through their various issues, but you introduce conflicts and struggles of their parents. Elizabeth's mom is struggling with depression, Sarah's mom with financial stress. Why did you include or why rather was it important for you to include those in a middle grade novel? My mom struggled with a lot of depression and social anxiety, which was just exacerbated by being an immigrant. And, you know, when I hear from adults that they're connecting with the mother characters, both of the mother characters, that's really important to me because, you know, it was in a way an opportunity to rewrite some of what my mom experienced. And Sadia and I have talked about you know, so many middle grade stories, they joke about like the parents are either dead or the kids have somehow left the parents behind. And it was really important to us to have kids in this book who are in intact families where they have, although they're, they're, they struggle with their relationship with their parents, they have a strong relationship with their parents. The way I wrote it or we wrote it, but the way especially I wanted to bring Sarah's parents' characters to life is having that showcase of the immigrant experience in particular as it relates to adults as well, because it would be only half a story if it was only Sarah's story or Elizabeth's story. Their story as first-generation kids is in part because of their parents' experiences as immigrants, as, as somebody who's other, as somebody who's struggling with whatever they're struggling in the case of Elizabeth's mom, um, uh, depression in the case of uh, Sarah's family, financial difficulties that come from moving your entire family and, and living somewhere else and not being able to use your degree and not being able to get the job that you had in, in the country that you were born in. And all those things are what informs the children's story. So if we had not put that in and missed that, that would have been a very, I think, a disservice to our readers and to the story itself. You touch on a lot of third rails, race, religion, bias, but not politics. I'm curious, why is that not a bigger part of the story? There's an election day scene where both of the girls have gone with their fathers, who are both citizens, to vote. And there's some conversation in that scene about a conservative candidate and that that candidate who is an incumbent in the local election who hasn't been doing enough to um, address anti-Semitism that's happening where the girls live. So I feel like we addressed it in that way. But the politics, I feel personally, like for the age that they are, they're just beginning to be aware of the larger context outside of their families. Who did you write this for? First and foremost, I wrote this book for my kids. Also, I would have liked to have a book like this uh, when I was a new immigrant. And so I think that for me, it was definitely both the kids and especially the moms. The moms are huge characters in these books, equal to the kids, which is kind of um, not very common in children's books. It's interesting that you mentioned, Sadia, um, about kids doing everything in novels, because one of the pieces of feedback that I got from people I interviewed for the book was that for immigrant families, very often the kids are doing a lot of things, as you know, for their parents, because the first generation child can navigate American culture so much better than their immigrant parent can. So, you know, like I talked to a woman whose family came from Korea and she described helping her parents fill out tax forms 
because it was something that they couldn't navigate. So I think part of the the immigrant story and part of our story is the ways that first generation kids I don't want to say that they parent the parents, but they're they're kind of um, a liaison almost to American culture for their parents, and it puts them in a very different role. So for me, the the readership is those kids, like the kids, the kids like I was who are bicultural, who are American yet have this very strong connection to their family's culture of origin. And what that experience is like, I just, when I was growing up, there weren't books like that. They just, they just really didn't exist. These friendships between kids who are navigating what it means to be American, what it means to be first generation American, and all of the the sort of the added stuff that comes along with that. There are a lot of scenes for both Sarah and Elizabeth heading to their respective houses of worship, synagogue, mosque, Hebrew school, Sunday school, uh, Muslim Sunday school, rather. I, I am curious, why was it so important for you to have so many of those kind of um, smaller moments? The fact that they're both from marginalized faith communities is a point of connection instead of a point of conflict between them. I want our book to be a source of comfort and coming together for people. And that's how we approached it. I think that that was just so important for me. And, and you know, just turned out that for this book, it was a, a perfect way to to showcase that. There's a scene when Elizabeth comes to Sarah's house for the first time and she opens the front door and in the hallway, there's a picture, you know, which you will see in so many Muslim houses. It's basically calligraphy. It's like, you know, something written in Arabic, maybe a verse from the Quran. And so many Muslim houses have something like that on their walls. And it would be very different, strange, unusual, especially in the time that we're at, maybe suspicious. But Elizabeth looks at it and she says, oh, I have something similar in my house too. My parents' marriage contract is similar. It just kind of like gives me the same vibe or feeling. And we put that in very deliberately because we wanted our readers, whether they're kids or adults, to be able to identify things that you might think are different, but maybe in a way they remind you of something else that's similar for you. And that is the way that we work together with people who we think are so different. Find something, whether it's food or art or anything, really, that you can find a commonality. You really wanted the characters to be believable. You didn't want that to throw off the reader. You know, people are flawed. What was one of the biggest flaws that Elizabeth and Sarah grappled with? I think for Elizabeth, um, that her biggest flaw, which she doesn't realize she has until later in the story, is she's a very impulsive. And that impulsivity gets the girls in trouble. And when she gets an idea in her head, she doesn't stop and think how that idea is going to affect the people around her, her mother, her friend. I just finished listening to the audiobook and it was very interesting to listen to when they're talking about the recipe that they're creating. They talk about the fact that Sarah is a planner and Elizabeth is a doer. And that's tied into this idea that Sarah withholds a little bit more. She's more cautious and Elizabeth is more, like I said, impulsive and needs to learn to temper that a little bit and how it impacts the people around her. For Sarah, it was really this this deep-seated kind of anger that she had in her own life because of how she saw people treating her parents. 
in the story, she's always been to Islamic school. So she's not been in this environment where people have been mean to her because of her faith or her color or anything else up till now when the story starts. But she's seen how her parents have struggled and had things said to them and had to just be quiet and not not um, say anything back in a lot of ways. And that's made her a very prickly, often rude character because she doesn't want to deal with people. She doesn't have a good experience of the human race. That's so, so realistic for a lot of kids. I feel for the age group that we wrote for is the idea that friendship is complicated. So often we portray friendship between children as being an easy thing. And, you know, either somebody's your friend or they're your bully or your friend, kind of like Maddie, who suddenly stops being your friend and you don't know why. And Sadia and I have been talking quite a bit about the idea that these girls are on the cusp of young adulthood. And this is their first experience of having a friendship that they had to work at. They had to make a decision if this new friend was important enough in their life to put effort into it. And I think Elizabeth's mother even says that to her at some point, you know, you have to make a decision if this friendship is worth putting time and effort into, if it's a friendship that you value and you think is worth your time. And our book recognizes the fact that kids are human beings and they struggle in their friendships sometimes. And to honor the idea that some friendships are definitely worth putting the time and the effort into it's not like I'm going to pat them on the head and say, oh, it'll all blow over by tomorrow. As the author, as a mom, it's more about recognizing the fact that this is very real for them and that they do have to work at it. And in a way, it's their first sort of not quite but almost adult friendship as two young women. Laura Siobhan is the author of the award-winning middle-grade novel, The Last Fifth Grade of Emerson Elementary. She is also a poet in the schools of Maryland. Sadia Faruqi is a Pakistani-American author, essayist, and interfaith activist. She writes the children's early reader series, Yasmin, published by Capstone. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Our producer this week was Kevin McCarthy. Our episode included interviews recorded in 2020. If you would like to learn more about us, visit interfaithradio.org. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices. While you're there, leave a review. It helps others find us. Next week, we take a closer look at the humanitarian response to the crisis in Afghanistan, the political events unfolding, and the perspective of Afghan Americans. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and I hope to see you next week.